This is Sam. This is Paul. This is Nadia. And this is Southpaw. Hey, and one more thing. If you love the show and want to support us, go to patreon.com slash southpawpod. So today on the podcast, we have Nadia Kim, a professor of sociology at Loyola Marymount University. She's also a Thomas Tam visiting professor at the City University of New York Graduate Center. Hi, Nadia. Hi, Sam and Paul. Hello, hello. Thank you for joining us. So could you tell us a bit more about your work and the types of topics you cover? Sure. My work focuses on race and citizenship and the intersectionality of race with gender, class, and so on. I have also studied the body and emotions because we don't seem to talk about the body and emotions as much, but if you think about it, racism, sexism, etc., often depends on inequalities of the body and also the way in which uh Powerful people, powerful institutions can use um, emotional dynamics as a way to have power. And so when you think about resistance movements from the civil rights movement uh, and other famous collective mobilizations, you realize that emotional uh, power also comes from the bottom up. So I would say that all of those uh, social kinds of processes inform the various research projects I'm involved in. And when you say the body, do you mean the physical body? That's a great question. I mean the physical body, but also all the processes related to the body. So our mental processes, right? Thinking, thought. Um, When I talk about emotions, I'm also talking about embodiment because emotions are a part of our embodied experiences. A lot of times our emotions come from the thoughts that we have and that affects our emotional state. I actually have a bunch of stuff I want to ask you about that. But before we get too into the nitty gritty, another interesting thing about you is that you were one of Paul's college professors. <laughs> yes, he was a great student. And I have to say, it's so, it's like really refreshing to actually come back full circle to my student through his incredible accomplishments, which is running this podcast. So congratulations to Paul and you, Sam. It's very um, impressive. Thank you so much. Your check's in the mail. (laughs) Better be big. (laughs) (laughs) Do you remember the class that you were teaching that he took? Yeah, it was race and ethnicity. Race and ethnicity is another thing that I might want to define later. But before we even get to that, How did you end up becoming a professor instead of, you know, a lot of the stereotypical roles and uh, peer pressures that we think we have about being a doctor or, you know, a lawyer as Asian Americans, I mean? (laughs) Yeah, Um, especially East Asian Americans, right? Korean American. Um, Yeah, I first got interested in sociology when I took a college course 
uh, with a really inspirational professor that focus specifically on race and ethnicity. Hence my interest in teaching it later. And Paul ends up being one of my students. I really wanted to understand race relations between Korean and black Americans, largely um, intensified and magnified by the 1992 LA quote unquote riots. Right. And I prefer not to call it riots because that takes away from the political and protest-based response of uh, people of color in impoverished and underserved inner cities, right? Riots just makes it seem like it's reckless, chaotic kind of looting and without any kind of uh, political uh, motivation. And that is not true of the 1992 unrest. Okay, so I'll probably call it unrest most of the time. But that happened to me when I was a senior in high school. And I remember being completely alarmed, um, anxious, um, and just helpless about the whole situation of Los Angeles being on fire for five days straight and people looking like me being implicated in not only the riots starting, but um, also being the victims of, um, you know, the, the unrest. So that was something I just didn't understand because at that point I wasn't getting any education in high school about racial relations history, about what even brought Koreans and black Americans together in and near South Los Angeles, what used to be called South Central back then or in or near Koreatown. And so when I took this course in college, even though we didn't really focus on the unrest, I felt that Professor Daniel, and I need to, you know, um, give him a shout out, Professor Reginald Daniel, at least taught me the history and the political machinations that brought, you know, these different groups of color together and often in conflict or seeming conflict. So that really inspired me. The other part of the question you're asking is why I decided to become a professor. And so my dad was a professor and uh, growing up, I would go into his office and I would write on his chalkboard in his office, my dad is a teacher. And he would always correct me and say, Youngna, because that's what they call me by my Korean name. They'd say, Youngna, I'm a professor. I'm, I'm not a teacher. And I, I'd, say, I'd say, what's the difference? <laughs> you know? and, and he'd say, well, I teach adults and I have to investigate and do research and write it up. And so even though that didn't fully... Um, uh, it wasn't fully comprehensible to me as a little girl. I was probably like seven or something. Um, it, it definitely stayed with me. And later on, when I was in college at UC Santa Barbara, I met a professor named Diane Fugino, who I must also shout out. And I so admired her ability to not just do research um, and activism, but she was able to fuse those two things. And so oftentimes her research was about Asian American social movements or the role of women that's largely underappreciated. Um, she wrote a tome about Yuri Kochiyama. So 
I really looked up to her. She was a role model for me. And so I think the combination of my dad being a professor and meeting uh, Professor Fujino really crystallized for me that this is what I want to do. Did you maybe growing up in an academic household, were you already, I guess, politically conscious about social inequities and maybe progressive politics? That's a great question. I don't know how conditioned I was directly or explicitly because my dad uh, passed away suddenly of a uh, heart aneurysm when I was nine. So I was a really little girl and my mother tended to focus more on the arts and music uh, because she was a, a very talented artist. She still is. And, um, you know, music was always playing throughout our house. And I think by indirect socialization or indirect conditioning, I think a, a lot of the messages in the songs were quite social justice oriented or political. Um, you know, my dad would make comments to me about how Ronald Reagan was my president because I was born in the United States. I was born in New York city and I was the only person in my family that was born in the U S because, um, both my parents were born in Korea and then my siblings were born in Canada. So uh, he would always kind of like say, you're the American in the family. He would make these jokes and he would also add on comments like Ronald Reagan is loved and hated. And I would just, as a six, seven, eight-year-old, I, I didn't quite understand what he was talking about. But when in Canada, there would be news about the U.S. or about Reagan, I would be a little bit interested just because of the way my dad had positioned me or, or described me in the family. So I do think these kinds of indirect, subtle messages become a part of children. You know, another one, um, if I can explain quickly, is that my parents were very anti-religion. Um, my mother actually and her family were political refugees to Brazil. And in Brazil, my grandmother, her mother, became a devout Jehovah's Witness and imposed that on my mom and her other children. And it just drove my mother crazy. And so one of the reasons she actually left her family in Brazil and immigrated to New York was because she did not want to deal with the pressures of being a perfect Jehovah's Witness uh, or the daughter of one, right? And my dad was very anti-religion, more most likely for um, intellectual and philosophical reasons um, as an academic. You know, not all academics are anti-religion or anti-spiritual, but my dad just happened to be one of those. And I think it also had to do with his mom being a devout Buddhist, which probably got annoying for him as well. So they wouldn't necessarily drive that home to me um, on a daily basis, but I definitely think that their social, um, I guess, like ideologies about religion definitely made me be critical, you know, made me think about small picture, big picture stuff. And um, I am a very spiritual person, actually. Um, and so I think I am quite different from them. But again, I arrived at that because my parents gave me the ability to think capaciously about religion and different social philosophies, right? The reason why 
I even asked you that question. The context is because a lot of people might not realize this. There is this kind of uh, stereotype also that all minorities must be Democrats or very socially liberal. Yes. And there is truth to that. But also from myself being Korean American and also Paul, the world that we grew up in in Korean America, like in Koreatown or different Korean communities, like I grew up also in Oregon, it's very socially conservative and not only socially conservative, but from my experience, I would I would say it's more like Christian right. Is social conservatism mixed with a lot of heavy religion. And when I try to explain it to non-Koreans, I say, regardless of what the church calls itself, it might be Presbyterian, it might be Baptist, it might be whatever, they all are closer to what you would recognize as evangelical Christian. I guess my own bias is that, you know, a lot of Koreans then tend to be very conservative. And I think this is changing for the younger generations. I'm older than Paul. So especially like the 1.5 generation or the people who grew up in the 90s or 80s, it does seem like they tend to be more, not right wing about everything, but, you know, especially about social issues. Well, what's interesting is that, first of all, there's a lot of diversity within Asian America, right? And so what you're describing is definitely true of a large slice of, of Korean America, right? That there's a lot of Presbyterianism, there's a lot of Protestant belief, right? Um, and some of that verges on the evangelical, depending on what community you live in, what region of the country uh, you reside in. But I think what's also telling here is that because of the different waves of Korean migration and the different conditions under which Koreans migrate, there is also heterogeneity, right? And diversity. So my parents, I don't even know growing up if they would categorically place themselves in the progressive or liberal end of the political spectrum, but I definitely know that they did not align themselves or associate themselves with the hyper Protestant Christian sect of Korean Canada or of Korean America. Korea is not like that. It's like Korean Americans are much more conservative or religious than Koreans in Korea, which I also found interesting in that I always thought it was like all, I guess to your point, right? I thought it was all homogeneous, that it's all, we're all the same. Koreans are Koreans. You know how like the joke is like, you know how Koreans are. Yes. But even from Korean Americans here to Koreans in Korea are very different. Yes. And, and that's to be expected, right? Because the experience of Koreans who live in Korea versus those who immigrate to a country where they're a numerical minority, right? And don't, they're not the reference group. They're not the dominant group. That would definitely change the top-down conditions under which you live, right? And I think one thing that's important about this too, and sociologist Pyong Gottman has done a lot of research on this, is that Koreans often become involved in religious institutions, especially the Christian church, as a way to get assimilated into the U.S. system. They need those social networks. They need those business networks. They need an institution that will help them understand 
papers relating to naturalization or citizenship or reading utility bills or figuring out uh, how their children can learn Korean, that is often mediated or performed by the Korean church. And so the need to be involved in the Korean American church is pronounced in the United States precisely because as immigrants, they're trying to make a way. Actually, to that point, I just had a baby not too long ago. We're not looking way ahead, but we just wanted to know, hey, are there any dual language preschools in Koreatown or just LA period? And to your point, they're all church-based. Mm-hmm. Yep. My daughter goes to a church-based Korean school. I have to drive her 30 to 40 minutes away every Sunday. It's definitely a time and energy investment, but you're absolutely right. I could not find a good program that was non-church-based. When you mention how Korean Americans use the church as more of a rallying point and a way to assimilate, it reminds me similarly of how Black communities would have to use the church for a similar purpose when they couldn't get jobs, when they had difficulty in finding housing. Do you see a lot of similarities between the two? Yeah, uh, I do see similarities. I mean, it's slightly different in the sense that the Black church often started out through African-American history of enslavement. So it didn't necessarily have to do with being contemporary post-1965 immigrants that then have to figure out a way to, and maybe assimilate isn't the best word, but somehow incorporate themselves into U.S. institutions, into U.S. labor force you know, basically to be able to um, earn an income and, and secure a, a strong livelihood for your children. But I do see a similarity in that the church becomes this communal node through which people who find themselves marginalized, excluded, um, ignored, uh, denied certain resources are able to call those and try to offer those to their own community through their own means. It's a grassroots organization or institution in that sense. So I do think that's similar. Another thing that I think um, is distinctive about uh, the Black church is that we're all familiar with the civil rights movement. And civil rights movements and many other movements like that were possible because of the Black church. That's those are the meeting places. Um, those were the masses from which the movements drew. Those were the places from which leaders like Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. emerged, right? And I think in the Korean American case, it has been less of a place of political revolution making, so to speak. Uh, that is not to say that. Korean American churches have not used the church institution as a way to deal with, for example, the 1992 unrest or to deal with um, discrimination when the U.S. government or California did not give them any kind of compensation afterwards or trying to get people to vote or trying to help businessmen who feel that um, they are being besieged by um, boycotts or complaints um, or whatnot. Definitely, it has been used that way. But I don't think um, 
the movements that Korean American churches have been attached to have been um, as, I guess, radical or revolutionary in the way, for example, the civil rights movement was. Now, to a point you were talking about earlier, you were talking about race and ethnicity? Yes. Now, we hear that as a combination term a lot, but I don't know if all of us know what the difference is between race and ethnicity. That's really an important point to make. I would say that first we need to be clear that race and ethnicity definitely interrelate and definitely overlap. And because of that, some people in more recent years have been using the term ethno-racial, which I like. I don't think it fits every situation, but so first I just want to point that out. The way that at least scholars tend to think about race is that race is based on the notion that you can divide, categorize, uh, order people based on biologized, heritable, phenotypic traits, right? So typically we associate that with eye shape, hair texture, skin color, other facial features. Um, I mean, and, and talking about the body, as I introduced earlier, you can think about body types, body shapes. All these traits are connected to some kind of biological notion, right? Ethnicity tends to be seen as your cultural norms. It could be religion, language, your traditions, customs, food, right? And sometimes that's associated with the nation of the ancestors, right? So one could argue that our ethnicity is Korean, but our race is Asian, right? Korean is kind of the ancestral origins. It's what we associate with language, food, customs. But Asian is that catch-all banner pan-ethnic category um, through which people link uh, a group that they see as sharing biologized or heritable traits. So when people say the two interrelate, um, you can see how ethno-racial might be an easier term because that way we can link both the fact that we're Korean ethnically uh, but deemed Asian racially. So with somebody like Barack Obama or actually even Kamala Harris, they're biracial, right? Yes. Barack Obama is half white. You could just as easily consider Kamala Harris South Asian. Yes. But that's not their experience. That's not the perception. When you see Barack Obama, America sees a black person. Mm -hmm. So how do we apply this in this kind of context? Well, the Black American experience is quite different from the experience of other people of color because in the United States, the history with the one drop rule was that if you had one drop of quote unquote African blood, even if you looked like Heather Locklear, for instance, right, or Christy Brinkley, you were considered Black. Okay. So because of that history of trying to make sure that Oh, anybody with any drop of blackness, you got to stay on your side of the tracks. You have to, you know, be amongst black people because we don't want you doing, having to do anything with white people and white communities and white privilege and white resources, right? That because of that, if 
anyone like Barack Obama and Kamala Harris have any drop of black blood, they're considered black by U.S. racial categorization. Now, that's even amplified further by the fact that many people who are part African ancestry, it manifests in some way, shape or form, whether that's in slightly darker skin or in a tighter uh, curl pattern in their hair. Right. And so it's easier to phenotypically pinpoint a person with partial black ancestry. Now, is it always? Absolutely not. Right. There are very light skinned black people like Blake Griffin, et cetera, you know, where people kind of look at them and they're like, mm, I'm not totally sure. Right. So that's not to say that doesn't happen. But as soon as America finds out that Blake Griffin or those that look like him are part black or 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 have a drop or many drops, then they see them as a black person. OK, with people who are Hapa, like half white, half Asian, half Latina, half Latino, half Asian, it becomes trickier because the, the phenotypic um, manifestations of that might not always be clear or visible in a patterned way. OK, so when we look at Barack Obama, partly it's that history of the one drop rule, the way we've defined blackness, but it's also the fact that we see his phenotypic black features that we associate with blackness, right? We also see that with Kamala. Okay. Um, so the way that we can define both of them is that let's start with Barack Obama. He is biracial black and white. Okay. Now, how does America's dominant racial categorization system see him usually as just a black American man, right? But if we were to be scholarly about it and really hew to the definitions that I just gave, then we would say he's half white and he's half black. He's a biracial um, American, right? We would say his ethnicity is Kenyan and I believe his mother was Irish, right? So those would be his ethnicities. Okay. Um, with Kamala Harris, we would say racially that she is half black and she is half Asian, but we would say ethnically that she is half Jamaican and half Indian. And if you want to even become more specific, she's Tamil Indian. Okay. So in that context, it's not just about sociology, but it's about looking at, especially in particular, um, black Americans, looking at how they're viewed in a historical context. In a historical and in the present day context, yes. And so all of that is sociology just because sociology is the study of groups and society and how that interrelates with individual dynamics. So we can think of sociology as the overall um, banner under which all this is happening. But in terms of in U.S. racial categorization systems, historically and in the present day. A lot of it is not just about how you see yourself. Much of it is actually about how dominant groups, dominant institutions have actually seen and treated you. So there is uh, an external and internal dialectic. Would you call that the white gaze? I mean, more broadly, I would just call that white supremacy, but yes. <laughs> um, well, we no, I mean the white gaze as in like me as a, like an Asian American person, but I always think about, I think just ingrained, you, you kind of judge yourself and it's like, how would a white person see me in this situation? Exactly. Yeah. So you can say that the white gaze is um, emergent from white supremacy 
Because if, the, if, if there was no white supremacy, then there'd be no ability for the white gaze to even exist. And then there would be no ability for it to uh, discipline us into actually seeing ourselves through the white gaze. Nadia, we have to be politically correct. We don't call it supremacy anymore. We call it white nationalism now. <laughs> Well, that's what maybe the white nationalists want to do because they want to associate it with heritage and culture and America's legacy. But I'm going to call a spade a spade, a duck a duck. It is supremacy in my book. And also their fantasy world is like, it'll never happen because even if they were to kick every person of color out of this country, so many of them have like, quote unquote, exotic fetishes. They will always bring over, you know, brides from another country and it's going to start all over again just like our president did no (laughs) (laughs) i hear you and i agree one tangent something you were talking about earlier one of my political awakenings was also like you during the la uprising of 92 and it was in college i saw this movie called do you remember this yes and i think kind of like you just unconsciously i picked up a lot of uh type of politics that were more labor oriented and social justice oriented from my parents. But that movie really made me reconsider and maybe not even reconsider, just question my assumptions. Like, where did I get these ideas? What's really happening here? And uh, that was a really powerful movie. Yes, most definitely. It changed my life. So for those of you who don't know, it's a short film. It's about an hour. You could actually find it online. It's called Sa Igu. It's on uh, YouTube. It's about an hour and it's about the during that time, they called it the L.A. riots. And it's from three Korean-American women. I think they were all store owners. It's from their experience. And one of the ideas that it covered, I believe, if my memory serves me, was about racial triangulation, where a lot of the anger might have been directed toward the race in power. But then it got sublimated to this other race, which is Korean-Americans. Do you remember that part of the documentary? Yes, most definitely. And and I think the documentary is powerful precisely because it it shows multiple perspectives within the context of race and class inequality in the United States, but from the perspectives of three Korean American women. And we almost never hear from Korean immigrant women. Um, you know, even in our own community, a lot of times it's the men who represent the family or who speak on behalf of it. Um, and so you're not going to see that in mainstream American media by any means. So th- for those reasons, it was really powerful. Um, I also want to say quickly that uh, we need to understand the the 1992 unrest from the optic of Korean Americans, because I think they were so caricatured and um, they were treated in such a delimited fashion during and long after the unrest. So the reason why the documentary is called Sa Yi Gu is because Sa means four, E means two, Gu means nine, four to nine is April 29. And that is the way in Korean history and in Korean American history, we date very important events. We mark or we... Um, you know, memorialize uh, significant watershed moments in our histories. And so that is why Korean Americans call uh, the 1992 unrest uh, 429. They don't call it the riots or, or whatnot. They call it 429. So this is a good transition to actually the broader perspective of media and how Asian Pacific Americans are portrayed in media. And since that time of the early 90s to now, has a lot changed? 
Oh, yeah, a lot has changed. I, I can't even believe sometimes that Korean Americans can be leads in a movie on a major multinational corporation's uh, network like Netflix. I mean, that to me is astounding. I can't believe that uh, we have a show, a family sitcom like Fresh Off the Boat, uh, featuring an all Asian cast, uh, you know, with side characters that are actually white, um, and uh, that that gets renewed um, for multiple seasons. You know, Doctor Ken. Uh, I can't believe that uh, Korean pop culture is now mainstream American pop culture. I mean, that to me is absolutely shocking, and I sometimes feel like I'm in a time warp. I sometimes question history and my upbringing because it's just so completely divergent from what I grew up living. Now, is all representation good? Or is representation itself kind of one step, but that's not the end all be all? All representation is certainly not good. (laughs) Uh, One of the prime examples of that is the way that white America would represent Asian Americans early on uh, in our history in this country. So we were represented as, um, you know, sinister patriarchs, um, Dr. Evil types, uh, mysterious, inscrutable, uh, threatening figures, right? And sometimes we saw this in the way that uh, Asian American women were portrayed is that you were either Susie Wong, Lotus Flower, Blossom Baby, China Doll, or you were Dragon Lady, Um, you know, uh, so you were masculinized and feminized all at once, whether you were male or female. Um, And I think that's captured beautifully by uh, Yen Espiritu's book, Asian American Women and Men. Um, So all representation is not good. Um, So one of the things we have to think about always are the implications and the politics of representation. So those older representations were not self-generated, right? They were not self-created or co-created by Asian Americans themselves. That was the racist and sexist imagination of white America, reinforcing the very stereotypes and ideologies about Asian Americans that justified, you know, putting Chinese men into these bachelor societies without their uh, families, their partners, without the ability to actually set roots down in the United States and, uh, you know, really make this country their home, right? These are the justifications for why they would ban Asian women from the country, like in the 1875 Page Act, because of the belief that these women were sexually diseased and were addicted to opium, like Chinese men, you know, so these were the very ideologies that uh, grounded and propped up these racist policies and acts. So when we think about the politics today of pop culture today, we also have to think about the implications and the politics of that, because clearly when these texts are being made for an American audience, it's not just for Asian Americans. It's for white America, black America, you know, all these other groups uh, that exist in the U S. And so we really have to be mindful of that when we craft certain narratives 
or um, images of Asian Americans. There's a term you said earlier, Susie Wong. Susie Wong was a character in the movies, but more importantly, she is this, um, you know, like Chung Sam wearing um, or Chi Pao, depending on <laughs> which Chinese dialect you use, you know, wearing woman who's uh, really sexy and exotic and is alluring, but also kind of um, threatening to white men. She, you know, comes in and kind of um, she interacts with these white men and, and you know, you know, she I mean, she's an interesting character in the sense that I think at least like she has a, a persona and um, she has the ability to vocalize for herself. But the, the characterization is really that she's like this sexy, alluring, haunting, kind of inscrutable Asian-American woman dressed in this exotic, you know, Asian folk uh, costume. Right. Um, and so she's kind of on the side of the hyper exoticization of Asian-American women. OK, so that became quite popular, um, you know, in the mid 20th century. Um, but at the same time, when we think about the politics of that, we realize that some of the reasons for the sexual harassment, the sexual assault, the hyper exoticization by white men um, who then go, try to get brides that are Asian from Asia, or then who go travel as sex tourists in Asian countries, you know, those kinds of Susie Wong images help um, animate those acts. Yeah, actually, I have the same kind of feeling in regards to how Americans, regardless of what side of the aisle they sit on, regardless of their politics, how they think about the Korean Peninsula and North Korea, mm -hmm. because they've been so caricaturized. They're like a cartoon. And what's insidious is because you're not making them straight up like the devil, but making them more funny in this cartoonish way, you're still dehumanizing them. So in a lot of Americans, I saw a poll where it was like a third of Americans are OK with nuking North Korea. And that couldn't happen unless you already bought into this dehumanization. Yes. Racism and all kinds of other isms, sexism heterosexism, ableism, all of that depends on dehumanizing those who are subjugated and subordinate. Okay. So the very fact that North Korea exists has to do with U.S. imperial geopolitical power over the peninsula. They made North Korea. They, along with the then Soviet Union, drew a random line across the 38th parallel made it the most heavily militarized zone in the world, and it became North and South Korea. So Americans not only need to understand that there would be no, no North Korea and South Korea without America, but they need to understand that dehumanizing people, no matter what side of a border they sit on, no matter what side of a wall they sit on, no matter what enemy they happen to be uh, in wartime, we need to realize that racism, et cetera, hinges on it, pivots on dehumanization. The Holocaust pivoted on dehumanization. And so one article that I wrote for um, a blog run by a prominent race sociologist named Joe Fagan, and the blog is called Racism Review, is about how it is not okay to dehumanize North Koreans, even Kim Jong-un, Kim Jong-un, because all of that is hinging on 
the very racist and race gender stereotypes that are used to harm Asian American men in the United States. So this doesn't excuse or exonerate Kim Jong-il, Kim Jong-un of, of any of the atrocities that they have committed as dictators. But what I'm arguing is that we need to, as you're saying, make sure that we're not reproducing racism and, uh, you know, heterosexism, et cetera, you know, by actually demonizing and dehumanizing anybody around the world. I kind of put it in a funny way, but there's a lot of truth to it. I say, oh, yeah, somebody calls themselves an ally. Ask them about North Korea and see how they paint them and see if they're still an ally. Mm hmm. Mm hmm. I mean, you know, my mother was born in North Korea, really close to China. I mean, you know, you could call me North Korean if you want to. You know, all of this is because of the geopolitics of countries that were empires and more powerful than Korea at the time, which was, a, a, you know, a developing nation colonized by the Japanese empire for 35 years. You know, and then, you know, try, you know, China tried to overtake it. Russia tried to overtake it. You know, so uh, one of the problems with being the superpower is that you don't need to know any of this uh, imperialist geopolitical history. And so all you see is what the stuff that happens at the finish line. Um, and then you think, oh, my God, the stuff that ended up at the finish line must be because North Koreans are so crazy or so bizarre or so weird. And it's like, OK, where did North Koreans even come from in the first place? Just to have a slight pivot, one of the things both you and Sam mentioned is about how whites will view other races. And an unfortunate talking point I hear lately is, I can't be racist because I have friends from XYZ group. How can I be racist? <laughs> well, I mean, there were slave owners that had romantic relations with Black women. That doesn't mean anything in terms of <laughs> Uh, you know, inoculating you from being a racist. Slave owners were necessarily inherently racist. They upheld a system of race and white supremacy. So just because you have a friend that happens to be of a different racial ethnic background does not mean that you don't hold racist viewpoints. You don't have racist thoughts in your head. You, you know, wouldn't have a problem with your son or daughter or eventual son or daughter, uh, you know, marrying someone, you know, of a different uh, racial and ethnic background. So I think starting point should be that we're all either racist or we're all either recovering racist because we were all born into a system of racism. Does that make sense? So instead of trying to spend all your time and energy trying to um, disabuse yourself of racist the label or the, or the sort of, you know, stigma of it. I think what we need to say is we were all born into a racist society. We are all conditioned by the racist inequalities, you know, whether that's in neighborhoods or whether that's in who's in jail or whether that's who, in terms of who we see as the enemy, um, or as threatening, um, you know, we have to take all that and decondition ourselves. We have to be recovering racists and, that also means that we have to acknowledge power differentials. If you were born into the white racial category, you have to acknowledge white privilege. Okay. So that should be the starting point. And I think if that's the starting point, it opens up all these different conversations and allows us to ask all these different questions beyond, well, how can I be a racist if I have a black friend? Or how can I be a racist, you know, um, if I'm married to somebody who's of a different racial ethnic background? Uh, the question is, we all, the point is we all are. And so 
maybe how did racial stereotypes inform why you married this person in the first place? How might racial stereotypes make you so self-congratulatory about the fact that you have friends of another racial and ethnic background? You know, let's, let's have a different conversation. Like how can we, um, how can we actually become recovering racists? What can we do? I think those are the the kinds of questions um, and issues that we need to be tackling uh, when you start from the premise that we're all swimming in racist water. Now, one of the topics that we wanted to discuss with you a lot is Asian Pacific Americans in the media and mainstream media. And maybe my bias is that a lot of the other groups, minority groups, people of color, like Black Americans, Latinx Americans, they've still got a long way to go for representation in the media. But I often feel like they've made a lot more progress than Asian Pacific Americans. Yes, I would agree with that. Most definitely. What do you think is the reason behind that? Well, I mean, with regard to the Black American case, as we all know, you know, this country was founded by kidnapping Africans from West Africa and enslaving them in the United States. So they have been the central players in nation building in the United States. So there's never been a white America without a black America. Okay. So because of that, because of that history, that legacy of a black American's place in the country, they entered into the national imaginary, the cultural fabric much faster and in greater force than other groups. Most Latinx, most Asian Americans, yes, some of them were here. You know, uh, the Filipinx, for example, were here, you know, in the mid 1700s in Louisiana. Um, you know, the Chinese got here in the mid 1800s, um, you know, but they got here later and they came here as immigrants, as migrants um, or forced labor. And so, you know, I think in terms of when we look at when did the masses of Asians and Latinx get here, it wasn't until about 1970 after the 1965 Immigration Act was passed, and we no longer had quotas against every country except Northwest Europe, okay? So when Congress, under the John F. Kennedy administration, passed that act, they thought that actually, you know, more Northwest Europeans and more Southeast uh, European uh, immigrants would come in. But much of their surprise, what ended up happening is that all these Latinx and Asian immigrants came in. Okay, so that is a much later start date, 1970s, than, you know, the 1770s, right? 1670s. Okay, so we really need to think about that difference in our historical trajectories. I think the other thing is that because the Latinx population was also here by dint of nation building, when we think of, well, we got Mexico, right? We're, I'm sitting in Mexico right now. I'm in LA, right? Nevada, New Mexico, Arizona, Texas, right? I mean, all that was through US conquest. So the Latinx population also was here in a dramatic way for longer um, than Asian Americans were, which, yes, you know, the US had annexed. Um, Samoa and Guam, and the U.S. had colonized the Philippines, but the U.S. had gone over to the Philippines, right? Um, and Samoa and Guam, you know, are territories. But I think it's different when you have the population and large numbers of that population already on the mainland, right? 
uh, what they considered America proper. And so I think there's also that different historical trajectory. Okay. Um, in terms of the Latinx coming into the United States, all you have to do is cross a border at San Diego or you cross a border in Arizona. Right. But for most Asians to get here, it takes flying. Right. And so, you know, in terms of geographic proximity, Asian and Asian America just doesn't have the physical propinquity that, um, you know, the Latinx population does. So, um, you know, the, the greater closeness between Spanish and the English language versus say, you know, like English and the Korean language. Right. So all of these things, I think, play into why the difference. I also think it has a lot to do with the fact that when Asian immigrants first got here and and en masse in the 1970s, their biggest priority was not that we need cultural power or the soft power of being part of America's popular cultural imaginary, but we need to survive, right? We need to give our kids a great education, um, you know? And so if that's your focus, you're not going to be getting into acting, right? Um, you're not going to be getting into being a pop star. Um, you know, you're, I mean, it's very, very difficult to break into professional athletics, you know, with all these, um, rags to riches, Horatio Alger, you know, uh, individualized cult of personality, heroic stories we hear, uh, about athletes, you know, the statistic, and it's probably even harder now is that one in 10,000, uh, people will have the ability to enter professional sports. You know, that's not going to be the avenue through which you're, you're like, I'm definitely going to get food on the table that way. Right. And so they're not going to in turn then tell their kids, OK, you know what? I think from the get go, uh, you're going to need to be LeBron James. OK, that's not going to happen. You know, so that's changing slowly now, obviously. Um, but in the beginning, in the 70s, that just wasn't the calculus. Actually, a question that came up from people online when I was telling people that I was going to interview you was a lot of South Asians were like, well, what about us? The implication was that they're even further down the totem pole than East Asians. And is a lot of that because of what you're speaking of, the migration timeline? Yeah, that does have to do with migration timeline, um, though, you know, to correct the history, South Asians were here quite early as well. Um, just as, um, you know, Chinese labor was because of indentured servitude. So many of the Chinese and the Indians um, and other South Asians came to the United States as um, indentured servants or coolie labor. And that's how they got to the Americas to often replace the African slaves who were in revolt, um, who were staging mutinies, um, you know, after the enslaved were freed, they needed another labor force. That's how a lot of them got here. So the history of South Asian America is richer and longer than most of us believe. Now, is it also true that most of South Asian America didn't get here until the 1970s? Absolutely. Uh, but I just want to make sure that we don't think that it was a blank space uh, for South Asian America until the 1970s. That's not true as, as it was not true for any um, Asian group. Um, so that's important. But I think what's hard also for South Asian America is that they are not firmly ensconced in the Asian American category. And that's precisely the way that white America or mainstream um, America has defined Asianness, which has really been about East Asian America. So when they constructed the model minority mythology, that was really about constructing an East Asian America. And, and to some extent, some Southeast Asian America, because at the time, 
well, especially in the 80s, I wouldn't say as much in the 60s, but in the 80s and moving forward, Vietnamese American students were doing quite well. So they kind of threw them um, into the basket. But in terms of when that model minority myth was used, not just to justify and hold up the U.S. economic system as this vast, open, democratic opportunity structure in which anyone can make it, no matter what race you are, as long as you work hard. The model minority myth was used for that on the one hand. On the other hand, it was used to discipline and punish Black and Latinx America for their protest movements starting in the 60s, right? starting with the civil rights movement in the 50s, to say, no, you are not suffering subordination and, and, and poverty and um, lack of education because America's racist. It's because you guys just can't do it as well as these model minority Asians can, right? So you see here how the model minority mythology was ultimately a political weapon and a tool um, to sustain white supremacy, okay, and to sustain uh, white racial capitalism, okay? So if you think of it that way, you recognize that South Asian America in that equation has been somewhat lost. Now, I would say today that that's vastly different because now when we think of the frequent winners of spelling bees um, and my friend and colleague Pavan Dingra is doing great work on this, or science fairs, we immediately think of South Asian American students. You know, South Asian Americans have now become a much more prominent face in Silicon Valley, in the high tech industry, in engineering, in computer program, all of that, right? So I do believe that that's different for South Asian America. But what has remained consistent and is something that there hasn't been that many cracks in is the fact that South Asian America has not found a clear home racially in the United States. Um, some people associate them with whiteness. If you if you look at ethnological or anthropological categories of the past, they've often associated Indians and other South Asians with whites because of the there's a, a Caucasus connection um, yes. historically and politically. So some people say South Asian Americans are white people, right? And then other people are like, no, South Asian Americans are Asians. It's South Asia, right? So this should also teach us the constructedness of race and ethnicity because it can go so many different ways depending on who's doing the defining for what political ends um, at different points in time. And so, you know, really what is about geographic differences in the way that people look is now being harnessed as race. Right. And being used for the purpose of racism. So that's why it's so muddled and convoluted uh, because it's meant to be. Actually, let's take a look at then a movie like Crazy Rich Asians and how South Asians were portrayed in that movie. Because I found the portrayal and the ways the characters reacted very problematic. Yes, I agree. Yeah, it was very um ethnicist. If you want to say there's racial differences between Chinese and South Asians, it was racist. Um, I, I found it also highly problematic, as, as many uh, astute observers noted. Many people took issue with the movie because of the centering of Chinese Singaporeans um, at the expense of any other Singaporean people. So, you know, it's a very, it's a, a problematic movie um, in many ways. And I, I do think that 
um, South Asians critique and, and other Asians critique of the movie is is fully warranted. How much does skin tone or skin color play into this? Oh, I think it plays a great deal. Uh, there's colorism within the Asian community, just like there's colorism within the black community. There's colorism within the Latinx community. There's colorism in the, you know, in the indigenous community. I mean, in a world that's formed by European and Euro-American domination by dint of colonialism, imperialism, racial capitalism, there's no way there's not going to be colorism in any community. So there is colorism within the Asian community. You know, the fact that if you think about the Crazy Rich Asians cast, everybody is light skinned. All the Chinese ethnics are light skinned and, and the Hapas and all the other supporting characters they had. Now, not all Chinese ethnics are light skinned, but you notice that in that movie, for the most part, they are. I mean, you know, and I should be a little bit careful because now that I think about some of the male characters, you know, there's different hues of brown. But for the most part, the majority of them are white light-skinned Chinese, Singaporean, Asian. Actually, I wanted to add, on top of being light-skinned for the most part, they were also Christians. They were Christians, exactly. Do you remember that Bible study? They were, in particular, they were Protestants. So it's like Asian wasps. Yes, yes, exactly. Well, yeah, they would be the wasps of Singapore, I guess, but yeah. And, you know, essentially, they were also the 1%. I mean, they're the most wealthy uh, population uh, the world over, right? So you have all of these vectors, uh, you know, intersecting. And then the only roles in which South Asians are depicted are as security guards for um, Henry Golding's family um, in the movie. And, you know, and then they're the, a source of, you know, fear. And um, they're, they're depicted as threatening, you know, when Aquafina can't believe that, oh my gosh, like, you know, where are these like dark <laughs> South Asians coming from when we're trying to get into the gates of his palace? Um, and so, and they're low status, low skilled workers as security guards. They don't have any voice. They don't have any names. They're not three or two dimensional. So, um, you know, the fact that they're the only really brown skinned people in the movie is highly problematic. It reminded me of movies about like the wild west or frontier days where it's like the way they described it, right? It's the savage frontier. It was uninhabitable. Really no humans lived here, whatever indigenous people, they, they're like savages. And then our family came along and we just transformed this place. We, we civilized this place. We made it livable for all of you. And then the indigenous people or the brown people, they don't exist unless to be the muscle. Yes, exactly. To be the low-skilled workers employed by the people who brought in all the, the capital and the wealth into Singapore and other countries, for example. So exactly to your point. The way I took the movie was like, hey, look, I can do rich white better than you. The beginning scene when she buys the building, it wasn't like, oh shit, look what she did for all of Asian Americans or Chinese Americans. It's like, Look, I could beat you at your own game. I'm not thinking about pulling everybody up with me. I just want to outdo you. Yes. Yeah. What's interesting is that scene is complex because they really pan the camera a lot to um, her son. Um, what is his name in the movie? Do you remember Henry Golding's character? Nick Young. Nick Young. Exactly. So they pan a lot to young Nick as a boy watching his mother outdo the whites 
and subvert their white racism by um, in a matter of seconds owning the building and, um, you know, these low skilled hotel workers having to uh, basically grovel and apologize to her, kowtow to her. Um, So on the one hand, it's interesting because it does show an Asian woman in a powerful, fully um, embodied role where she is pushing back and waging her own form of resistance to that, to that racism and classism that they exacted upon her. But on the other hand, like you said, it's not about, oh, this is empowering because, hey, I am going to funnel my money, my brain power, my time and energy into uplifting the Asian community in Singapore or in the United States, it's that, oh, I am just going to make myself more of a real estate or hotelier behemoth by owning another one and making myself a billionaire as opposed to a millionaire kind of a scenario. So it's upholding capitalism, right? It's upholding this notion of you know, this one tiny class being able to own and control so much of everything while the rest of the Asian population in Singapore, the United States, you know, has to fight for crumbs. So I, I completely agree that there are certain forms of resistance and subversion that happen in that scene whilst completely reifying and upholding the very systems of domination that are implicated in racism and classism, right? Yeah, my frustration in not just regarding that movie, but just throughout my whole adolescence, especially with other Asians, is that things like that, crazy rich Asians. Yes, there is social justice in it, but it's social justice, like you said, the complexity of that scene in a libertarian way. It's not like social justice in an absolute way. Right. Yeah. And and when you mean libertarian, are you saying, oh, like we should allow people to do whatever they want with their money without any kind of say or regulation from the government or taxation? Is that kind of what you mean? I'm saying Ayn Rand would watch that scene and would love it. And for me, that's not enough. Mm, Got it. Yeah. And I think it's also redolent of neoliberalism, right? And, and, And for this moment and this movie, I would just define neoliberalism as Basically, the market dictates everything and the government just allows, you know, corporations finance, you know, the uber wealthy to basically amass and accumulate as much as possible. Um, and, And because of that, there's no resources and no money for the public good. Right. Whether that's education, whether that's healthcare, whether that's housing, um, you know, whether that's nutrition, like SNAP programs for children, you know, like. To me, it's just a celebration and glorification of that kind of neoliberal capitalism. Now, how would you compare a movie like Always Be My Maybe to a movie like Crazy Rich Asians? You know, I I think they're very, very different movies. And on the one hand, I think that's great for Asian America. I think it's great for Asia. We do need diversity in terms of the kinds of representation, the kinds of imagery, the kinds of storylines that we have so that we don't go back to, as we discussed earlier, this notion of a homogenous Asian America or an Asian America that's simply East Asian American or an Asia that's just East Asia. Okay. So that's uh, very important. The difference is, is that I think Crazy Rich Asians was really a movie about transnational Asians. Yes, Constance Wu is an Asian American in the movie, but 
It's really about her relationship to a transnational Singaporean Asian in Nick Young and his family who are Singaporeans. You know, and yes, they're transnational capitalist elites, of which we have many now that many Asian nations have rapidly developed. Um, But they're fundamentally Singaporean. The friends that they engage with are also transnational Singaporean elites. And so I commend that movie for showing a side of Asia and Asian America that we don't see enough. Always Be My Maybe is squarely about Asian Americans, okay? It's about a Vietnamese-American woman who becomes a famous restaurateur, celebrity chef, and it's about a working-class Korean-American guy who works with his dad in heating and vents, okay? So that, and and they live in San Francisco or they live in LA, like that's fundamentally an Asian-American movie. So I think having that diversity on screen is, is crucial. I also think a major difference is that the movie always be my maybe had a class critique in it or had some kind of class complexity by dint of him being a working class blue collar and his dad um, and her being from a Vietnamese American family who's Class standing, we're not that certain of, but the neighborhood they seem to grow up in San Francisco looked pretty nice. Um, you know, her parents were always working. They were always gone. So maybe they owned a business, small business, um, which usually allows most Asian immigrants, not all, to enter into some strata within the middle class. You know, Crazy Rich Asians is about the top 1% elites across the globe. And so, you know, and yes, it's about Constance Wu, who kind of comes from probably a more middle-class family or her mom maybe had lower middle-class roots. Um, I think it was more solidly middle-class though. And, and so the movie though really focuses on her engagement of the highest strata of Asian wealth that you'll find across the globe. It's just crazy rich people who happen to be Asian. It's crazy rich people who happen to be Asian. And so I think the movies are quite different in that way because yes, there is an implicit class critique in crazy rich Asians because A, they're named crazy, right? That's not necessarily a compliment or very laudatory. Two, their cruelty and their exclusionary um, norms are definitely cast into the spotlight in terms of the way they treat Constance Wu in the movie. Okay, so there is that implicit critique. But again, it's not, as you said, about critiquing the foundations that made these Asians so rich in the first place. It's just critiquing the way they become once they amass their millions, billions, whatever. And also the way I saw a lot of non-Asians and maybe even some Asians say it. They didn't say the title like you just did. Crazy rich Asians. They said it crazy rich Asians, like crazy rich to describe how rich they are instead of the type of rich person they are. Yeah, I mean, it's a double entendre. I think I mean, I think that's what Lamb means, the author. You know, I, and I, that's the double entendre is what I was picking up on, is that they're crazy rich in terms of being uber rich, but they're also crazy. You know, like the way they treat her, you know? I mean, going after her with a private investigator, right? Putting a dead fish in her room. If that's not crazy, I don't know what is. <laughs> right? Yeah, yeah putting blood all over the wall. I mean, who does that? Right. So, but I I think 
the movie that really resonated more with me, even though I do have some problems with it, is Always Be My Maybe, just because we don't see a lot of movies where Asian Americans and, and the second generation, the younger Asian Americans are actually the protagonists. They're the leads. They're, they are the story. Crazy Rich Asians is really about these crazy rich Asians and Constance Wu having to negotiate them and maneuver around them, right? Or through them. Okay. Um, and that's important. That is important. Um, and I do consider myself someone who has a transnational linkage to Korea and also to my family in Brazil. But most Asians I know, and my guess is most Asians you know, are not part of the wealthiest class of global capitalist elites. No? No. So in terms of being able to relate to that movie, yeah, I can relate to Constance Wu, even though she's an econ professor. I would never be an econ. <laughs> Sorry, <laughs> I, apologize. I apologize to all the economists of the world, but hey, I'm a sociologist, right? Um, but, you know, I don't relate to the rest of the cast at all. And, and so always be my maybe, which I took issue with in, in parts in, and in moments, had me smiling through a lot of it because I saw not just myself, but I saw, you know, my siblings and or my friends, uh, my generation, even though I'm a little bit older than uh, the way Randall Park and uh, Ali Wong were depicted in the movie. I just saw us in the movie. And so uh, it was gratifying and um, really inspiring in that way as well. I kind of like you had some problems with it, but overall, I did really enjoy the movie. And in particular, there were two characters that I thought were unique. Like I was like, I don't know if I've ever seen that in mainstream media before. One is the way Randall Park's dad is portrayed. Yes. Where he was like a nice guy, working class and very supportive. And it's like, that's so banal and mundane. But then shit, <laughs> I've never seen that before. Yeah. And then Randall Park's ex-girlfriend, who was more of the classic, like, politico, bohemian, San Francisco type, who didn't necessarily even have to be Asian. I found that refreshing. Can I add rocking the locks? <laughs> that woman <laughs> had, like, Bob Marley hair. That was incredible. Yeah. No, exactly. You know, I, I actually really appreciate that you brought up the dad, because that was one of the characters that stood out to me the most. The fact that he doesn't have an accent, okay? Most children that were raised in the early 1980s, which they were, had parents that were first-generation immigrants and did not speak English perfectly. So what I wish they had done more of was explain a little bit more of his backstory. Is he a Korean-Hawaiian? Is he someone who is a descendant of the generation that started in 1903? You know, or did he come over like my dad is the student generation in the 1950s and kind of the accent wore off? I mean, my dad had an accent, but, you know, he didn't live very long in the U.S., so who knows what would have happened. But, you know, as we acclimate to uh, whatever country we settle in, we we tend to take on their cultural norms and and comportment, right, their, their affect. So, you know, I was just wondering, like, what is his backstory? And um, interestingly, like you mentioned, he also isn't a, a, a small business proprietor and he didn't enter the middle class that way. He's not a scientist. He's not a professional. You know, he is a blue collar worker. Um, 
And so it would have been great to kind of understand like, well, who are his parents and what kind of class uh, upbringing did he have? Um, and then to the other point you brought up, he was absolutely emotionally available to, um, you know, Randall Park as his son. He was um, emotionally communicative. He was the one that knew all along that um, Sasha, played by Ali Wong, you know, was his love. Right. Um, it was the person that he, uh, his son should be with. And um, he's the one who's like, you know, I don't think you and your girlfriend really belong together. The, the dreadlocks woman, I don't think you belong together. You don't really seem to fit. You know, why are you so scared? Why can't you just stop being so risk averse and vulnerable and just or, or, fe or fearing vulnerability? Why don't you just go and um, declare your love to Sasha? I mean, he is really involved in his life not to mention he doesn't care that his son is a weed head he doesn't care that his son spends all this time like you know breaking in front of the mirror in his room you know and i mean later on we learned that you know he does think his son should move beyond just being uh, a blue collar worker in in air and vents and heat right um and he does acknowledge that his son is afraid to live um, and afraid to pursue his dreams because of fear of failure. Um, but, you know, he doesn't seem to at all be a tiger dad in any way, shape or form. And I, I, I just would have loved for the movie to have made him more three-dimensional by, by giving that backstory, by explaining that, and then maybe helping us see a little bit more how that uh, translated onto his parenting of Randall Park. Yeah, there's even subtle things like the dad had a mustache, which I was like, that's also weird. Other than Pat Morita, which I think the mustache was more like in a comical way. Here's a small Asian guy, you know, who does chop sake or something. Right. <laughs> Whereas this was kind of more like, hey, it's kind of a cool, like of the times, uh, masculine Asian dude with a mustache. Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, he's fascinating on so many levels, you know, and we don't really get the mother's backstory, but. Um, it would have been interesting to also kind of get, you know, her backstory, um, how they met, um, and so on. So I, I just, I think that obviously the movie doesn't have all the time in the world and they really want to focus on the relationship between Sasha and Marcus. Um, but I also think to your point that the dad really allows us to see different kinds of Asian American masculinity and especially Korean American masculinity. Um, it allows us to see a different kind of Asian American family formation that we tend to stereotype as um, there's the brooding, silent patriarch who is emotionally non-communicative and unavailable, who just goes out and brings home the bacon and wants to be the head of household, you know, and then there's this kind of, uh, wife that has to basically, uh, maneuver around his patriarchy or has to fight with him to uh, claim some form of power. You know, uh, there's, there's no emotional communication between parent and child. That definitely wasn't the case. And so I think it was nice just to see diverse kinds of, uh, Asian American parenting, um, Asian American masculinity, um, family formation. And I particularly appreciate that because I don't think my family fits into at all the stereotype of uh, what I just provided for you, right? The robotic, uh, very patriarchal Asian family. Um, 
you know, and there are friends that I had, and, and part of this is because I grew up in Asian Canada, but, you know, there are friends that I have, their family didn't look like that either. And so, you know, I just think we really need to um, have more popular cultural texts demonstrate that heterogeneity. Yeah, it was just weird to see a happy Asian family where everybody seemed to get along. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Because I think a lot of the Asian American filmmakers, when they do make something, it's like they're of a certain generation where they're caught in between. So they use their film or their short story or their book as therapy. They want to air out all the dysfunction that their family had, which is cool. Share your story. That's your truth. But it paints a picture for every other reader who's like, oh, this must be the norm. Yeah. And so I think definitely a lot of it comes from your own subject position, right? Your own experience, your own history. I think a lot of it too, is that, you know, remember that this is popular cultural consumption. They have to make money. And when they already know that their uh, texts, their movies, uh, their shows are not going to necessarily be watched as widely as say Game of Thrones or whatnot, Mad Men, they have to appeal to as broad an audience as possible. So I think they in the writing room also think about, okay, what is an experience of a lot of Asian Americans that they are going to latch onto that that's going to resonate with them. And so even if it wasn't their own particular experience, I think they often put in the experience of what they've heard from a lot of Asian Americans or what, you know, they think seem to think is familiar to a lot of Asian Americans. And so I do think that's partly why, Sasha Ali Wong's family is very stereotypical Asian immigrants, right? The parents are never home. Um, they speak very accented English. They will not pay one cent more than they have to on anything. They won't even tip people <laughs> or they won't even go into any service encounter so that they don't have to tip people. Um, you know, they weren't um, supportive emotionally of Sasha. Um, and so, you know, I, I think she also made sure to put that experience in there because she knew that would resonate with a lot of Asian American audiences. Did you catch the subtle subversive uh, thing they did with the name of the band? Hello, Peril. Yes, I did. And I loved it. I think it's hilarious. I think the songs, actually, if you listen to the soundtrack, I don't know if you've had a chance. The soundtrack is amazing. Um, and the Hello, Peril songs were co-written by Randall Park, um, who used to be in um, a hip hop troupe when he was at UCLA um, as a Asian American studies um, major. I think it was called Ill Again, um, if I correct. And, you know, he's a talented MC, you know, and so um, he can write rhymes and he can flow. And and so I love the Hello Peril songs. Like they're called Tennis Ball and Hello and I Punch Keanu Reeves. <laughs> Those are the names of the songs on the soundtrack. And so I think they should be taken as transformative Asian American popular cultural texts themselves. Um, and so one of the things I do want to comment on is the music and the way music of the time is used as uh, um, like a leitmotif or a thematic, I should say, throughout the movie. And so Randall Park and Ali Wong love hip hop, right? And they love like neo soul and R&B soul like D'Angelo. And, and so you know, they're, what they're really doing there is they're giving a nod to Black American culture, right, through hip hop and through soul and R&B. And I think that's very, very important because I know for me, too, growing up, 
because Asian America was so invisible, especially in the pop cultural realm, you know, to say nothing of the political realm, we really understood race and even, I think, linked our own racialization to the very centered Black American experience, right? For those of you who don't know what the title is playing on, Hello Peril, it's about yellow peril, which is about this fear of yellow immigrants like invading the U.S. Exactly. Yeah. And Yellow Peril has been an ideology used, you know, to justify federal exclusion laws against Asians, the mass incarceration of Japanese Americans during World War Two, you know, all of that. Right. So it has very um, deadly consequences. It's an important uh, political social justice message that they are deploying through naming their band as such. And, and so I think that's important. And going back to your point about hip hop and even talking to Paul and a lot of people younger than me, I asked them, you know, what was your political awakening where you became aware of social injustices and even care about politics or become a political animal? Because like you said, for yourself, Nadia, and for myself, the L.A. unrest was a big one for me and for you. But for people younger than me, a lot of them say hip hop. They said it was hip hop that got them on the road oh, to yeah. thinking about political things. And I feel like your brand of music that you grew up with, the Asians who listen to hip hop seemed much more politically aware than the Asians who, you know, my generation listened to alternative like emo music, you know, like we were <laughs> dealing. It was more like we cared more about psychological things, like how we feel. Maybe we cared more about mental health issues, but the social consciousness that wasn't part of that because that music wasn't about that. Yeah. And, you know, what's interesting, too, for me in terms of my own kind of um, story is that in high school, I wasn't in love with hip hop. I wasn't in love with what we called rap. Right. Like I, you know, you can get political messaging from listening to, for example, like U2, which I listen to a lot. Right. Or I listen to the police and sting. And and, you know, these are what we associate with like white people or white music. But I actually was very politicized by those kinds of singers. Peter Gabriel. Right. Very instrumental to my own kind of politicization. But the reason why hip hop was all around me in high school was because all my friends, you know, the track team, the cross country team, like that's all we ever listened to. Right. And so in the beginning, while I didn't really love it and appreciate it because growing up, I was trained to really think musically and melodically and rhythmically. Like I wasn't socialized or conditioned to care about wordplay or about um, rhyming, right? Or beats. Or beats. Yeah. Or backbeats, right? A lot of hip hop in the 80s and 90s are based on backbeats and, you know, like, or sampling, like, you know, that wasn't considered musicality, right? That wasn't considered original. Right. But as I listen to the lyrics of, you know, say Busta Rhymes on Scenario, you know, from, you know, Tribe Called Quest or I'm listening to F the Police, you know, from N.W.A. I'm listening to Fight the Power, you know, by Chuck D and Flavor Flav. You know, I'm like, oh, my God, these lyrics are so powerful. They're they're amazing, you know. And so they were always a part of me, even if in the beginning I was still not over my belief that the music I'm most interested in has to be about melody, harmony, rhythm, right? And and originality. Um and of course n no music is original, so I should you know, I, I quickly disabused myself of that. But but you know, 
once I realized how political, like when I heard fight the power and, and watched um, Spike Lee's do the right thing, like I can't tell you the waves of tingling that went through my body, right? Just because it is so politically powerful, but it's so sonically powerful, right? And, and so I, I think that the fact that they made sure to invoke political messages in these more discreet and indirect ways, I think is something that we should applaud and, and hopefully that we can expand from and extend from. And I hope that at some point we can have enough Asian American movies where that is the topic, not just how Asian Americans learned about race and racism and understood their own racialization through the black American experience and through black American music, but how black and Asian American history cultures are so interconnected because what the heck would the Wu-Tang Clan be without Kung Fu movies and martial arts? I mean, so much of hip hop borrowed from Asian American martial arts, I mean, Asian martial arts culture, which would then get parlayed into Asian Americanness, right? And so, you know, really that could be a point of connection and political coalition building and alliance building between blacks and Asian Americans. Um, but of course that's been a very fraught and, and vexing process precisely because of political projects like model minority divide and conquer. You know, they made sure if you look on the soundtrack and I couldn't really pinpoint exactly where they happened in the movie, but they um, foreground Buena Vista Social Club, who, if you don't know, um, you know, they're an Afro-Cuban uh, musical group that really focuses on and celebrates the music of pre-revolutionary Cuba. You know, I mean, they had movie music from like Alice in Chains, you know, so I definitely think it was also about talking about the specificities of growing up in the eighties and the nineties, um, you know, and, and then of course they had like, you know, blow the whistle two shorts strip club anthem, which, you know, is problematic on other levels and like ludicrous pimping around the world. But, you know, I think that was uh, their way of, of, of saying, okay, do you guys remember these joints from the 1980s and the 1990s? Like, let's let that take you back. Where were you during those moments? How did you feel about your identity as an Asian American man or woman or dealing with your family or dealing with dating and love at that time? And I just think they did an effective job of that. The reason why I mentioned earlier about the beats and even like my own biases, I felt like growing up where I didn't also initially like rap. I feel like it was like culturally conditioned because if I look at traditional Korean music or even Japanese music, it's a lot of drums, like beats like drums huh. in tribal culture and in indigenous culture that's what we all shared it wasn't until you got to like europe where it was like percussions and beats were completely eliminated and then we adopted that as like that's real music where the rest of the world was like no music is about beats and so i think even asian americans can have a love for hip-hop or beats that isn't just overlapping i think hip-hop in itself can be a universal thing where everybody can have their own hip-hop because they have their own history of beats and in, in actuality if you listen to not korean americans but korean rappers in korea a lot of them say we have a history where technically you might even say that we invented rap because just not singing but talking over beats and matching it to the beat goes back like a thousand years yeah, I mean, yes. And 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 I, I, I do think that we have to be a little bit careful with the argument just because we're also talking in a context and we always have to think about the context, but we're talking in a context in which 
the way that a lot of dominant uh, groups have come to power or solidified their power is by stealing from African black culture, right? Or the, the culture of marginalized people. So absolutely, you know, if, if we redefine, um, rap or what have you, you know, by talking over drum beats and, you know, indigenous folk beats and things like that. Yeah. We could say, you know, that, yeah, maybe we invented that or, or we're the originators of that, but I don't think that's necessarily the most productive conversation. Yeah, I don't really mean that we invent a rap. I'm just right. really trying to drive home the point that beats can be a, a more of a universal thing. Yes. No beats can definitely be more of a universal thing. But what I was saying is that I think where it's more productive is to be able to say, look how much we influence each other because we're both non-white, non-European cultures, right? Whether that's Kung Fu martial arts or whether that's hip hop that comes from the streets of the South Bronx in the 1980s, right? Is that there's a way in which we are compelled by or we draw from the specificities of your non-white, non-European culture. And then we harness that as a form of empowerment for our community, right? We harness that as a form of empowerment for hopefully our community, but maybe even beyond, right? For all non-white peoples, for all third world peoples. And so I'm hoping that, you know, even though maybe we're extrapolating a little bit more than say maybe Ali Wong and Randall Park meant to when they, you know, wrote this movie or co-wrote this movie, I do think that they wouldn't have put that message in there if they didn't want to show the nexus between Asian uh, and Asian America and African and Black America. You know what I thought did a really good job of that, to your point about coming together, is Sorry to Bother You. Have you seen that? You know what? I have not seen that, but I've heard rave reviews about that. Did you like it? I think it's this generation's do the right thing in a lot of ways. Wow. Not because it's just talking about race. It covers race a lot, but it's also talking about power structure and class structure. And then what they use is labor organizing as a unifying front. And the two main labor organizers is uh, who, who's that Asian-American actor? Steve Young. And is it Tessa Thompson? Yes. So Steve Young and Tessa Thompson are the main two labor organizers. Wow. So it's centered on labor organizing. You never see that either in, in mainstream movies. Yeah. So it was kind of like uh, we might be of different races. And that was the other thing about the organizing. You had like all these different races coming together because they were like in this power structure of class. We're all at the bottom together and us at the bottom have more in common than if you break us down in some other way. Hmm. So more in common in terms of our class positioning, right? Yeah. Okay. In got it. perspective to those in power. Wow. I really need to see that. That sounds amazing. I think one of the ways that also resonates with me, if we're going to sort of analogize, do the right thing and sorry to bother you is that even though in do the right thing, there's a character named Sonny, who's an Asian uh, shopkeeper in the black community in New York, right in Brooklyn. And he is not three dimensional in the movie. And, and that is one thing I, I hope and pray that Spike Lee will do one day is um, to really focus on the Asian American experience and, and link that to the black American experience. But he is a shopkeeper. And, you know, one of the scenes, iconic scenes in the movie is that when um, they decide to start protesting right in in a in an unrest type format right that the black american characters are wondering if they should torch sunny's store okay and they ultimately what happens is that sunny you know is like no you know I, um 
you, me, same, right? Like, do not look at me as, as one of the members of the white establishment that um, oppressed you guys in Brooklyn. You need to see me as one of you. And he's like swinging his broom saying, please do not burn down my store. Please do not like end my lifeline, right? And ultimately they decide not to. Um, and so that's a very powerful sort of, you know, it's a momentary message, but a message nonetheless of Blacks and Asian Americans aligning in that corner of Brooklyn. This is how ahead of the time this movie was, because the context of this was Radio Rahim being choked to death by the police. And Sonny's actual quote was, I know white, I black, you me same. Yes, thank you. Oh my gosh, excellent. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. So, I'm I'm not white. I am black like you. You know, whites have also shit all over me through racism, you know, and that's partly why I'm here. Um and so, yeah, I, it, that um is a powerful scene even if it's just like a, a few minutes, right? And so, um you know, I I think that more texts like that, more movies like that um would really help, you know, it's not the panacea, of course, but nothing is right. I mean, you know, we've got to take this stuff in steps. Um, and so, you know, I think it really would help put cracks right in the, in the facade, um, of, uh, the whole model minority divide and conquer, um, immigrants versus natives divide and conquer, um, you know, uh, practice of white supremacy and discourse of white supremacy. The scary thing about that movie is 30 years later, that movie still stands. And it's like, I don't want it to still stand. I want it to seem outdated. Like, oh, we don't have to deal with those problems anymore. I know it's, I mean, you know, and this is something that the Black Panthers said in the 1960s is that the United States is a fascist regime that goes through these different kind of reversible stages. And so, you know, if the Black Panthers um, were just as prominent today as they were back then, they would say, look, this return to overt, explicit, celebrated racism and nativist racism slash white nationalism is exactly what we said the system would do. <laughs> you know, this is no surprise um, to us. This is how fascist white supremacy white racial capitalism works you know and i just think they're so prescient in terms of everything that they've said the prison industrial complex right the war on people of color by dint of the prison industrial complex or we could add the military industrial complex right because they talked a lot about race wars and race warfare right i mean how is any of that abated in our current era so, you know, I just think that's really powerful. If I could also just really say quickly, um, to, to, since you mentioned Steve Young, I think one of the things that's really also um, commendable about Always Be My Maybe is that if you recall that really cute, awkward sex scene between Marcus and Sasha in the back of his beat up Corolla, they make sure to talk about safe sex and condoms and how we learn to put it on. And I just think like, first of all, we don't have barely any movies about Asian Americans. One, we have barely any movies about a Asian American love and romance too. Now we have almost no movies about Asian Americans and safe sex and, and, and 
sexual development and the early stages of being in a romantic sexual relationship. And I just thought that was so powerful. Um, you know, the fact that they make sure, I mean, that's time added to the movie. They, they make a calculation about every scene and every point of dialogue. And they made sure to talk about, do you have a condom? And, and talk later about like, how did you know to even use it? You know? And I just, the reason why that was so powerful to me is that I don't know if you saw the movie burning. Um, it's, it's a South Korean movie. And if you haven't seen it yet, I really uh, cannot recommend it to you enough. It's by the famous South Korean director, Lee Chang-dong, but, um, you know, it's an amazing, thrilling, haunting, like psychological mind F-U-C-K, right? And Steve Young stars in it. And I loved every part of the movie except one scene, which some people might say, like, what's your problem? But in the close to the beginning of the movie, you know, there is um, lovemaking that goes on between uh, this, uh, the male protagonist and the female protagonist. And there's absolutely no foreplay. There's no discussion of safe sex. There's no condom anywhere in sight or anything. Um, and they just like have sex. And, and to, to me, I, I know that maybe like being really nitpicky, but I, I, everything is political. Right. And so for young people watching that movie or people in, you know, their teenage years or college years, you know, trying to figure what sex is, you know, to watch that movie, I think is really confusing. And I think is misleading um, and misinforming. Whereas you, cut to always be my maybe i don't know if you recall but before the first or the second time that marcus and sasha have sex there is a long scene of foreplay where they're on the stairs they're kissing they're making out they're really into each other you know and i just i think that is so 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 important um and 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 so it also plays into this notion that Asian American women find Asian American desirable and sexy. You know, they're not these like asexual ripped of, of any kind of sexual personhood, you know, in the fact that Ali and his ex-girlfriend and, and other people find both Marcus and her um, husband or ex-husband played by Daniel Day Kim as highly sexually desirable. You know, so I just think there's a lot of different registers um, moving at once um, in uh, Always Be My Maybe that you that you don't see in movies like Burning. And so I, I also think that that's really powerful. No, that's true, because if you watch a lot of award winning films from Korea, even though they're award winning, they still fall for the same problems just of Korean culture, like what you're speaking to, you're not nitpicking because if you know about the amount of sexual violence in Korea, right, it starts from media, but also that informs media. It just goes back and forth. And right now there's a huge scandal about sexual violence yes. in Seoul, Korea right now. So no, what you're talking about is directly speaking to that. And it does need to change yes. in the media for it to change in real life. And it needs to change in real life for it to change in media. But right now I'm, I'm sure even the filmmakers who are, you know, woke in a lot of ways and making great films, they probably are not aware of their own biases when it comes to how they portray sex, because I've watched tons of Korean movies and have never seen it portrayed in any other way than this kind of mechanical, we're going to get right to it. No safe sex. And often 
rape does get normalized in Korean film. Totally. Yeah. No foreplay. So you don't see the agency of the female leading up to the actual intercourse. Um, yeah, exactly. I mean, you know, burning is a little bit different because she's actually the one that it kind of initiates the sexual encounter. She's highly, you know, she's, she's a, the, the owner of her own kind of sexuality, but as regards issues of safe sex and regards issues of the politics of sex in that way and, and being responsible, as you say, in the way we depict sex between a man and a woman, knowing that it does happen in context of patriarchy and misogyny, you know, we do have to be very, very careful because it can be a fine line, right? Um, but you're absolutely right. Like those organized crime rings of sex clubs, right? And prostitution and escorts and sexual enslavement in South Korea. Yes, a lot of that is normalized and a lot of that becomes endemic to the culture rather than something that's problematized and questioned um you know and so even like there's a very famous movie in south korea called shibaji about like a, a basically a sexual concubine for this man and, and she's this really young girl who's a virgin and and you know the guy's raping her and and there's a it, it's made to look like a love scene you know because yeah, she might be unclear whether she has feelings for him or not, but how is a little girl like her supposed to know in a in a context of patriarchy like that, right? And so, you know, I just I I really want more Asian, especially South Korean movies, as you say, but also more Asian American movies to really think about sexual politics when they do these love scenes. Um, and I think always be my maybe does a stellar job of that. Did you think that when you were going to agree to come on this podcast, you'd be talking about sexual violence, white fascism, the work of the Black Panthers? and <laughs> Not necessarily, no. But I also know that every topic is somehow um, interfacing with another topic. And, and the way my mind works, it, it kind of moves like that. So I'm not surprised that we're talking about everything under the rainbow. So <laughs> that's fine. So to switch topics, body and emotions, what you were talking about at the outset of this interview. Yeah. I wanted to ask you about that because there is this thing that um, there's not only a stigma, but I think there's a confusion with not just Asian Americans, perhaps it goes to Asia as well about things like mental health and depression. Yes. And one of the things I had read is it's not just the stigma alone. That's only part of the answer. The other thing is that Asians don't recognize that as depression because they embody it. They feel it as physical pain. So they go to an acupuncturist or they go to a doctor looking for pain medication because they don't realize this is uh, something happening in their mind and it's depression. They think it's some kind of, you know, what Koreans would call mumsai or some kind of physical pain. Yeah. They don't know how to think about it, right? Or maybe they are thinking about it in a non-Western sense. Can you speak a little bit to that? No, that's a really great point. Mental health problems, depression, anxiety um, are rampant among the Asian American community and among the second generation, the younger Asian Americans. And this is kind of this um, unspoken problem um, that it's, it's um, you know, hiding in plain sight, right? And that's also responsible for another major problem among young generations uh, of Asians, which is high drug use, um, you know, high rates of drug use. And, and um, I think that we really need to, as you say, kind of think about the various um, influences on why this is the case. So we've talked a little bit about 
the pressures of the model minority, or maybe we haven't talked about that, but let's go there, right? The pressures of the model minority. If you have so many Asian Americans making it into Harvard, Princeton, Yale, you have so many of them being valedictorians, you have so many of them, um, you know, winning the top scholarships and awards. If you're just under that, you still don't feel like you are clearly a success. You don't feel like you're at the top of your game. And when you have parents that constantly remind you of that or comparisons that are being made, you know, implicitly or explicitly um, that position you as not a true Asian American or uh, not a true achiever, uh, not someone who's truly built up the family honor and propped it up in the community it's not surprising that there's a lot of uh, mental health problems because of feeling like a failure from one of those entities. Right. Um, it also comes from, you know, I, I know I want to say that there are definitely families that uh, buck the trend of lack of emotional communication, lack of, um, you know, emotional intimacy, um, in terms of affection and things like that, um, and verbal, uh, emotional, um, sort of affection. Yes, that is a pattern among certain Asian ethnic groups. And so that too is going to feed into the lack of feeling emotionally supported, um, and feeling emotionally healthy and stable. You know, you also have the way in which, um, Asian American men are, demasculized or, or desexualized in a way that uh, befits racism, even though we should be clear that we oppose patriarchy, we oppose heterosexism. But we're talking here about one of the ways in which Asian American men are denigrated vis-a-vis white American masculinity. That causes mental health problems. You've got Asian American women dealing with uh, patriarchy, misogyny, gender bias in their own families. Um, that causes depression, anxiety. You know, uh, you've got bullying. You've got the invisibility um, in the uh, popular cultural domain and in the American imaginary. And so we're kind of like kicked around and kind of used and abused politically um, or culturally um, or at school even. Um, And so I think all of these things play into uh, the high rates of, of mental health illness. And like you said, because we're not used to, or many of us, not all of us, but many of us are not used to emotional communication or physical affection, or let's go to the fact that uh, mental health counseling is not commonly recommended by parents who themselves need it, right? So they're not recommending it to their children. There's a stigma against um, seeking therapy or professional help in that domain. And so people aren't getting it. So what do they do? Like you said, they'll take uh, prescription drugs, right? Or they'll self-medicate with um, drug drugs, right? Illegal drugs. And, you know, this is what I would call a growing epidemic among Asian Americans. And I think if, if we can move away from the idea that the body is just something that we experience physically, but the body and embodiment is something that we experience mentally and that we experience emotionally, when we have a more holistic understanding of the body and embodiment, then we would not just say, doctor, do something to heal this migraine, right? Do something to heal my exhaustion and fatigue all the time, right? But we would say, you know, therapist, do something to help my mind, do something to help my emotional state. So do you see what I mean about, you know, not just thinking of embodiment as a physicality, um, but thinking of it as mentality and emotionality? Yeah, I agree. 
I think another aspect of it that I've seen with people I know is also there's no space for uh, mental health or therapy because that's where the church resides. If it's not going to be from, you know, the regular traditional doctor, it's not going to be from the acupuncturist or the herbalist, then that's church. And outside of that, like there's nobody else you should see. Like I, I've known people who've had episodes and they just have gotten uh, exorcisms instead of ever going to therapy until it got so bad that the state had to intervene. I know this with actually several people who are Asian Americans. And then at that point, they started seeking professional treatment. Wow. But up until then, they were just getting exorcisms and people were laying hands on them and praying over them. We were talking about the good aspects of the church with civil rights. It could also serve a utility function of organization and nodes. But also there's another aspect of it where it's like, if it's not your physical body, I think this is an unconscious thing, but if it's not your physical body, then it must be your spirit, right? this immaterial thing. And then the spirit is the realm of the church. What are you talking about that you have to go to somebody to talk about what's going on with you mentally? Or in this way that you can't describe physically, if we're talking about embodiment. Yeah, no, that's a really important point. The church does become uh, this source of, you know, cure-all. Maybe it can provide the panacea that we're looking for. You know, God will solve all things. But let's be real. Like you said, you know, those exorcisms didn't work. And then, you know, social services or CPS had to come in and, you know, intervene, right? And, you know, I again, like I also think that's true of all these Korean Americans, for example, because yeah, even though I didn't grow up in the church because my parents were very anti-religion, after my dad died, my my mom married a Korean American immigrant man who went to a Methodist church. And so all of a sudden, Korean American church became a, a centerpiece of our lives. And, you know, did that stop him from domestically abusing my mom? Absolutely not. You know, did that mean that there was less depression and anxiety among the Asian immigrants, first generation, uh, be they the second generation at the church? Absolutely not. You know, did that mean that there was less uh, drug use among Korean Americans? Because so many Korean Americans go to church or grow up in religious families, you know, no, right? They're still using ecstasy or whatever they need to self-medicate their way out of their problems, their way out of their mental health problems. So, you know, clearly we need to realize that, you know, it's not, a panacea called church. Yes, you if you can find a way to harness and marshal the church and the social, spiritual, emotional support you get there, wonderful. But hey, let's also interrelate that with therapy and professionals who do this for a living. Let's interrelate this with trying to gain more egalitarian gender relations um, within the family and to allow for emotional communication beyond well, I feed you and I put a roof over your head and I clothe you. So I love you. Right. Let, how about we move beyond that? You know, let's demand that the U.S. government or, you know, uh, corporatist America, whatever, give their just due to Korean Americans or Asian and other Asian Americans when their entire town is burnt to the ground and they suffer the brunt of the $1 billion in property damage, right? Or let's not let it burn down in the first place. And let's let the police, the National Guard and the armed forces protect these communities of color, be they South Central or Koreatown, right? So, you know, these are the kinds of various institutions and modalities through which we need to ensure that 
racism, patriarchy, class injustice, you know, heterosexism, ableism, whatever, right? And we can consider mental health inequalities under ableism, right? That, you know, these things are dealt with through multiple interrelated avenues. You can't just say, oh, the church and God is going to solve everything. No, I mean, that's not really ever been the case. If that was the case, then why would the civil rights movement haven't just prayed racism away? Right? They didn't just do that. They organized that, you know, they were organizing grassroots communities into this major, massive movement that influenced the entire globe and helped influence third world nations to decolonize and fight the colonizer. You know, I mean, so again, we have to really um, move beyond singular, unilateral solutions, right? So I, I think that's really, you know, at play here. And just to clarify something you said about the Los Angeles unrest and about preventing the property damage. Back then, South Central, which is now South LA, got destroyed. A lot of what is known as Koreatown got destroyed. But the National Guard and the police made damn sure that Beverly Hills and those parts of LA did not get destroyed. Exactly. Yes. And and there you go. That's in some ways it was horrific. But on the other hand, in terms of a political awakening or what I like to call a racial baptism by fire, boy, there's nothing like that to wake up Korean and Asian America, is there? Sometimes you need these watershed moments in history to make immigrants who are kind of invisibilized or, you know, positioned in these very kind of, um, politically palatable uh, roles, whether that's model minority or forever foreigner, you know, by by white uh, supremacy, you know, people who kind of think, put your head down, don't get involved in protest movements and politics because we got to put food on the table and, and get you a good education. Sometimes you need these moments to recognize, hell no, we've got to wake up and fight for hours because, hey, it wasn't just Rodney King and the Black and Latinx community that was uh, victimized here. It was us, too. And we're all interconnected in that way, right? Just like how the murder of Vincent Chen in Detroit woke up the Asian-American community in the early 1980s to say, hey, we have got to bond together as an Asian-American community in the Midwest, where we're even more invisible than on the West or the East Coasts. And we are going to forge a movement to make sure that there are no more Vincent Chins, right? And so I think that, um, you know, as, as, as sad, horrific, um, as much of a loss as it was, it's also been a political game. Amen to that. <laughs> All right. I think if we take on any more, this might be too much information to handle. Yes, yes. Yeah. All right. Thank you. No problem. Okay. Can I just mention one quick thing? I'm going to be really, really quick. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I really loved and always be my maybe how there was also... A uh, uh, centering of a inter-ethnic Asian American relationship, and the reason why that's so important, this Korean and Vietnamese American relationship, right, is because more and more Asian Americans of the second generation of yours and my generation are marrying inter-ethnically with other Asians. So it's actually indicative of those larger marital trends among a second generation Asian America. And so people always associate 
Asian American women with white males, right? But that is actually not the line that's increasing. It's really marriage between these uh, inter-ethnic groups. And so um, that I think was really powerful. The fact that we should foreground that the movie had a South Asian member in the band of Hello Peril called Tony. And he, you know, his relationship with Marcus was definitely, you know, pinpointed. Then we have Quasar, you know, he's like a Chinese, I think he's portrayed as a Chinese American, but he's an MC. Uh, we have Keanu Reeves, who's a Hapa Asian American who was brilliant, or he's an Asian Canadian. Sorry, I shouldn't do that, even though I know he lives in New York. But, you know, he's also featured in the movie. So, you know, his dad, remember, ends up uh, having a relationship with a black woman. And so I think all of that kind of diverse narrative kind of structure and, and those storylines were really um, important and something that we need to extend from in future movies. Hope. Yes, hope, exactly. Not no, hope, yes. So thank you, Professor Kim. Thank you so much, you guys. Have a great day. Bye-bye. Bye. Hello, this is how we greet you. This is what we say every day when we meet you. We are Hello Peril, the band of four. We got tunes to entertain and teach you. We say Hello. to everybody here tonight, we're so glad you could step into our zone. And tomorrow say Hello to all your friends and your foes. And tell them how we got